So, you know, as, a, as an ADD sufferer, I understand it, but doesn't it just drive you crazy when you're watching a movie? And you go to the movie theater and you pay your $27 for a ticket, and the people three bros back won't shut up. Right? See, you know, you give them the customary, shh, and then, you know, a little while later, shh, and then you can tell everybody's annoyed. It's not just you, but it comes to that pivotal moment in the movie, and there's this collective, shh, right? Well, the most important movie for us to focus on, for us to pay attention to, the most important story ever told is the story of Jesus Christ. But there are so many whisperers around us that when we're trying to focus, we're distracted. We're trying to focus and we hear the murmuring. We're trying to focus, we hear the whispering. We're trying to focus, we feel the pressures and the stresses and the strains and the hardship and the hurt and the loss. So many distractions. I think passages like this remind us we need to do a better job of focusing and we need to make our shh a whole lot louder to the distractions of the world and the distractions of our heart. So with increasingly single-eyed focus, we can stare at Jesus. That's what he's going to talk about today in Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, again, the theme of Hebrews, Jesus is better. So don't turn back. Jesus is better. Hold fast to your faith and press on to maturity. Jesus is better. Hold fast to your faith and press on to maturity. And so over the first part, the first two chapters of the book, it's been all about uh, the, the revelation of God, the word of God. And, and the prophets did an amazing job of bringing the Old Testament word of God in pieces and bits. And it was an amazing word. And it was an amazing word about an amazing God. And everything about it was wonderful and great and perfect. Everything about the people it came to was totally jacked up and messed up. That was the only problem. And that word became the foundation for the better word, the word that would be built on top of it and completed and fulfilled, and it's the word of God's son. In these last days, he spoke to us by his son, not by his servants, the prophets. The better, the final word has come. And, and within that, it was all about, okay, well, who is it that's speaking? And, and if the one that is speaking is an ama- as amazing as we say he is, then his word must be that much more amazing uh, than, than we than the other word that we've had. And so in chapter one, it was all about the glory, the splendor, and the majesty of Jesus. Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God. He's the shining of the shining glory of God. He is the exact stamped image of the Father. He is the the one who has inherited all things. He is the creator of all of the world, and he upholds all the world by the word of his power, and he purified our sins on top of that. Glory, majesty, eternal reigning splendor, chapter one. Chapter two, or chapter one, he's God. Chapter two, he became man. He took on flesh. We were in the likeness of flesh and blood, so he took on the likeness of flesh and blood, and it required that he took on the likeness of flesh and blood to identify with us, and it required him to identify with us if he was going to represent us. And that was chapter two, identified with humanity. He's human. In chapter two, he suffered. Chapter one, he's God and he's glorious. Chapter two, he's human and he suffered. 
He was the propitiation for our sin, a big word that simply means he bore the wrath of God, became the sacrifice of God to pay the price for our sins, to offer us reconciliation to God. And it required that for him to be a faithful high priest. It required that. And if that's the case, if he's that glorious and that wonderful, if his salvation is that eternal and that amazing, then how in the world could we possibly not pay absolutely rapt attention, the beginning of chapter 2, absolutely rapt attention to this Jesus? And it is by paying attention to the gospel that we've heard that we keep from drifting from the Jesus we love. It is by paying attention to the gospel that we heard that we keep from drifting from the Jesus that we love. And that was chapter 1 and chapter 2. When chapter 3, we're going to Hebrews. And it's going to be very much similar to that first message. Based on the work of Jesus' incarnation, based on him being the high priest who is the sacrifice for our sins, based on all of that, consider Jesus. Fix your attention on Jesus. Focus on Jesus and don't let other things distract you from Jesus. And if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we'll be able to hold fast to Jesus when life is hard. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will be able to hold fast to Jesus when life gets hard. And that's exactly what this text is about. How to stare at Jesus long enough that you can hold on to Jesus when life wants to tear you away. And so the command, fix your gaze on, and the rest of the support is, what is it about Jesus that we need to focus on? What is it about Jesus we need to fill our minds with? Listen as we read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has than more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's pray. So Father... Grant us to be people of cheerful courage because our hope is a better hope. Our salvation is a better salvation. Our Savior is a better Savior. Our word is a better word. Help us to have fearless, cheerful courage whatever a fallen world brings because our hope's better. And Lord, whatever it brings, grant us to hold fast to Jesus, not drift from Jesus, not leave Jesus but consider Jesus and love Jesus and focus on Jesus. And thank you for the good news of the gospel. I don't have to hold on tight enough to Jesus because Jesus is holding tight enough to me. And we as a church don't have to hold tight enough to Jesus to keep it white-knuckled squeezing, God, because you have grabbed hold of us and your grip is tight and your grip is sovereign and your grip never, ever lets go. So grant us people that hold fast because we're already held so tightly by you. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus, Jesus empowers us to focus on and hold fast to him. Jesus empowers us to focus on and hold fast to him. First, as the sent one, he faithfully speaks for God and intercedes for us. As the sent one, he faithfully speaks for God and intercedes for us. And so uh, a poet came up with this quote, and it gets quoted a lot in Christian circles, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. And then there's all these neurologists who did a study and came to the same conclusion. You know what they studied is that the more you have a thought, a thought takes a pathway. The more you have that thought and it takes that pathway, the more that pathway becomes this, this, um, this groove in your mind that keeps traveling in that direction. But, you know, we didn't need multi-million dollar studies to do that. All I have to do is sit and talk to you about your Instagram habits. And as you scroll, you see these amazing filters they put on. And as you scroll, you see these beautiful people with beautiful hair and beautiful friends at beautiful beaches. And you scroll and you scroll and you scroll, and one of two things happens, or both happen. You become a vain human being who's concerned about their filters, their looks, and their appearances on a social world that isn't the real world, and the trips that you should be taking, and making sure everybody sees the trips that you take. And we become vain about the appearances that other people receive us from, or, and, we become insecure. I don't have those friends I don't have that filter. I don't have that, you know, $350 hair dye. I don't have that great outfit. I don't have that beach trip. There's everything I'm missing, and I'm insecure. And the more we view, the more that pathway gets rutted into our lives. You know, who else didn't need a bunch of money to discover that is the people that make our movies and the people that make our TV shows. There's a reason they can import their values into your life without you ever knowing it because you're laughing at what they're putting out. And so they just throw in and shape your values and they show in, throw in a good barb at the religious people on the show so that you know those aren't the kind of people you want to be. And they throw in a good barb at the parents because you know parents are worthless and dumb and the kids know everything anyways. And they throw in these barbs and these values uh, about how sexuality should look and how gender should look because you're going to accept it if you laugh at it. And the more you binge on Netflix, the more the pathway of environmentalism, because we're all destroying the earth anyways, Netflix show one through 100, right? Because, and the more you have that thought, the more you wear that pathway, and the more that pathway carries you over and over and over again to the same place, the more you stare at images that cause lust and, and trap yourself in, in, in physical pleasures through images. Pathway, pathway, pathway. You become what you behold, and whatever it is you're staring at most consistently will determine your values and your words and your actions and your thoughts, and so much about your life will come from what you stare at. You know why else we didn't need millions of dollars to study this? Because we have a Bible and a guy named Paul, and he's like, whatever's true, whatever's lovely, whatever's noble, whatever's worthy of praise, meditate on these things. And then do these things. That's why we have the psalmist. It's like his delight. If you want to be blessed, the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his word, he meditates day and night, day and night, day and night. Whatever you choose to stare at most and most intensely is what you will become. And that's what Hebrews is going to challenge us to here. So there's one exhort or there's a main exhortation in this passage, and, it, and we find it in that first verse. Consider Jesus. And he's going to unpack all these amazing things about Jesus to consider. 
And then he's going to close with very much the same application. Hold fast to Jesus, your hope, your confidence. And so as we jump in, he starts with therefore, which means he's linking this instruction back to the truth that we've just studied. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is majestic. Jesus is the final better word of God to humanity. Consider therefore, Jesus is a high priest who is the sacrifice who paid the price for your sins to atone you to God and the very present help in your troubles who can sympathize with your weakness because he had all the same temptations you had. He didn't sin though, but he's able to help you with sympathy and help you with power as you face those same things. And so the therefore is likely connecting back to chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, he is the apostle. He speaks the final word of God to humanity And in chapter 2, he's the high priest who identifies with us, represents us, made atonement for us, and helps us. Therefore, it says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Saying the same thing, right? You share in a heavenly calling that makes you a holy brother. And so here's the point of what he's saying. Your calling comes with an identity. Heavenly calling means it originated in heaven. God called us to a saving faith in his son, Jesus. We respond to that call with faith in Jesus. And when we share that heavenly calling, it takes us to a heavenly destination, eternal glory one day. And that calling has been placed on your life. You believed that calling. And when you believed that calling, it now defines who you are. Holy brother. Your calling comes with an identity, your calling defines who you are. And your calling is from God to Jesus Christ. There is countless voices in this world that want to tell you who you are. They want to tell you you are what you do, you are how you perform. They want to tell you you are a failure. They want to tell you that it's all up to you. They want to tell you that you're on your own. They want to tell you um, that you should, you should be insecure or, or they want to tell you that you should be self-righteous because you're a really good person and you deserve better. Voice after voice wants to tell you who you are. But it is the call of God to be born again, to follow Jesus Christ in faith that defines who you are. And it defines you as holy. You are set apart to something so much better. You are holy, utterly different than you were before set apart to God. You are holy, perfectly pure because of the finished work of Jesus. And brother, you are now defined by being a child of God and nothing else. Holy because of what Jesus did. You are defined by being a brother who Jesus is not ashamed to claim as his own. And you are defined by being part of a family of God where we are brothers and sisters together. Holy brothers who share in this heavenly calling. And then he gets to the instructions. Consider Jesus. Now that does not mean, because the way we use the word consider, that does not mean I'm considering a Ford or I'm considering a Chevy. I don't know why you would. I'm considering Georgia Southern, and I'm considering Georgia Tech. Don't know why you would, right? It doesn't mean I'm considering my options to see which one works for me. The word for consider is to fix your attention on something with intensity. 
Consider Jesus not casually anymore. Consider Jesus not as a three-hour-a-week hobby. Consider Jesus not when you feel like it or you're around Christian people and then stop later on. Consider Jesus with a burning intensity to your life. The word for consider has an, an intensity attached to it. So do you consider Jesus with an intensity of focus, with an intensity of gaze? Do you consider Jesus as a dominating force and feature of your heart and life, or just the casual one? I think one of the ways you can think about this is when you have idle thoughts, what you've thought about or what you focused on the most kind of comes out. So if you watch a lot of news, you know what your idle thoughts will be about? News. If you watch an awful lot of entertainment or comedy, you know what your idle thoughts will be about? Be about that. How do I know if I have fixed an intense attention on Jesus is when my thoughts stray, you know what they stray to? Jesus. When my thoughts get idle and just randomly roam around, where do they roam to? Jesus. And that's what happens when your delight is in the law of the Lord and in his word you meditate day and night is Jesus starts to become the normal thing that your thoughts drift to and the normal thing that your thoughts come to. Consider Jesus. Consider him with intensity. Don't consider him casually anymore. Because the key from your side of the equation to holding fast to Jesus and pressing on maturity, the key on your side of the equation is this. Is your mind filled with the glory and the beauty of Jesus so that there's an intensity of focus that begins to dominate your heart and your life and your gaze and everything else? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The only way to stay close to Jesus is to stare at Jesus. Right? You're not going to get close to Jesus by doing enough religious stuff. You're not going to stay close to Jesus by serving enough, though you should. Right? You should do these things. But you're not going to stay in intimacy with Jesus and abiding with Jesus by the things you do. You're going to stay in intimacy of Jesus and abiding in Jesus so that Jesus shapes your life by staring at Jesus, by considering, by paying fixed, intense attention to Jesus. Therefore, consider Jesus. Well, what about Jesus should I consider? He is the apostle and high priest of your confession. So the word apostle means a sent one who officially speaks and officially represents the person that sent him. And so when we say Jesus is God's apostle and he's faithful as God's apostle, it means Jesus has been officially designated to go speak for God. And so when he speaks, it's God speaking. So apostles are those that when they speak, it is the same force, the same authority as the person that sent him. And so Jesus comes, he is sent by God, and he speaks. And when he speaks, he is God. And when he speaks, he speaks for God. And everything he says is God's word. Now, he is God, and he's also sent by God. We riddled that out in the first couple of messages. So you can, you can jump on that and, and listen to those if you need to. But he is the sent one of God. He was officially sent to speak for and he was officially sent to represent God the Father. And so I'm reading Matthew in my, my quiet time right now. And I encourage you just from time to time, go through a gospel. When you read the gospels, you know what you're looking at, right? You're looking at how God interacts with the world. You're looking at how would God respond in a situation to a person that mocked him. How would God respond if he ran up on a woman of the night that wept at his feet? 
How would God respond to the really sinful sinners? How would God respond to people like us that are pretty good and religious and righteous? And when you read the stories of Jesus, you are seeing how God would act. You're seeing how God would speak. He is the sent one who represents God. And what you see is the really good, self-righteous people that don't need a doctor, he crushed them. And the people that you and I would throw away is way too far gone, way too hopeless. Those kind of people. Come on, let's eat. Come on, your sins are forgiven. And it was exactly those kind of people that he pursued, and it was actually exactly those kind of people that wanted him. He's the sent one of God who represents God uh, to us. He spoke God's words to us. And then secondly, he's the high priest. He doesn't just represent God to us. He became like us. He experienced our temptations so that he could represent us back to God. Later in the book, we're going to find he lives ever to make intercession for us. That, that, that he is speaking to the Father on our behalf. He's speaking to the Father against the accusations that can be made against us. He's speaking to the Father about the sins that should condemn us but instead are forgiven. He's speaking to the Father about the frailty that we have back to him with, with power and forgiveness and help. He's speaking forgiveness back and he's speaking power back to overcome it the next time. This is what he's up to. Consider Jesus, God in human flesh, sent from God to speak God to us and show God to us. Consider God in human flesh dying on a cross to represent us back to God so that we're not condemned and crushed in his presence, but we're welcomed as children. Don't you think about that with some intensity? It's kind of a life-shaping deal. Think about that with some intensity. It's kind of an eternity, world-shaping deal. It's not a Sunday only, if I can stay awake kind of thing. The apostle and the high priest of our confession. Now when we hear confession, we think mainly, we think about I'm going to confess my sins to God. And that's accurate, right? The word in the Bible means to say the same thing. And I would say to say the same thing with a whole heart. To say the same thing believing it. And so when we confess, we say the same thing wholeheartedly about our sin that God says about our sin. We confess it. But one of the main ways confession is it's actually a positive word. We have confessions of faith. That is, we positively and wholeheartedly believe these things about God and these things about his word. And so what we're saying is he's the, the apostle and high priest of our confession, of our positive statement, of our declaration of our belief in Jesus he is our, the high priest of our confession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is the all-glorious God that became flesh and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the high priest of our positive statements of we believe in Jesus and we declare Jesus. Y'all out there still? He's the high priest of our confession. So therefore, you who share in the holy brothers, who share in the holy calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And then he enters into this comparison with Moses. He was faithful in all of God's, <clears throat> he was faithful to the one who appointed him. So why do I consider him? 
Because Adam blew the thing, right? He messed this thing up, but Jesus didn't mess it up. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to his commission to come and represent God to, to us. And he was faithful in his commission to die on the cross for our sins and bring us back to God. He was faithful. And then we're introduced to another guy that was faithful as well, a guy named Moses. And he's not attacking Moses. He's not bringing Moses down. What he's doing is an argument that says, man, Moses was awesome, wasn't he, guys? Yes, Moses was awesome. Moses led the people through the sea on dry land. Moses kept praying for these hard-hearted, obstinate people. God was like, let me wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. I've been around some groups of people. That's a pretty tempting offer. Have you? Like, yeah, go ahead, God. Let's just start again. And Moses would plead over and over again before God, no, 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 no. You've made promises, God. Those promises hinge on these people. And he would stand before the people to God. Moses is pretty awesome. Moses walked through on dragon. Moses stood up to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth at the time. Great. The argument is Moses is great. Oh, Jesus is so, so much greater. Moses was faithful. Oh, Jesus is faithful and this did so much more. But why Moses? Right? Moses is one of the top three Old Testament saints. So we've got David. Messiah is going to come from you, David. We've got Abraham, the covenant of promise. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, Abraham. And then we have Moses. The one who brought the law and the covenant, the one who, the the defining redemption event of the Old Testament, the Exodus, was all with Moses as the point person. And so that's why Moses, and in fact, God made a promise or told us something through Moses. What we're looking for is a new Moses. What we're looking for is a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15 and following says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words, God speaking, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them, God's words, all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of them. The new Moses is going to come, and you better listen to him. The new Moses is going to come, and you will listen to him. The new Moses is going to come if you don't listen. An accounting will happen. By the way, this verse is a quote from Numbers 12, 7. My servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. Consider Jesus with intensity. Fix your attention on that. How can you do that? Are you opening up your Bible every single day of your life, mostly? And then when you do that, what are you looking for there? Right? Are you reading it just to read it? Are you reading it hoping something will stand out? Or are you reading it to say, this is going to tell me about Jesus? This is going to tell me about God? This is going to tell me about what he's accomplished? This is going to tell me about who I am? And then lastly, it's going to tell me what I should do. So a couple ways. Read your Bible every day. And one of two ways. You can make a note about Jesus and then pray that note Pray that thought. That's one way you can consider Jesus. Or we give you four questions, and if you're doing gospel fluency, those four questions show up again. Or if you're doing one of our foundation notebooks, there's four questions. You can ask those four questions, and you're going to find these truths out, and then you can pray and meditate on those truths. Read the Bible. 
every day looking for Jesus. And I have to look for some great scholarly insight. Just find Jesus there. He's so simple, children get it. Doesn't have to be prof- it doesn't have to be complex to be profound. So read, meditate. Spend some time through that day bringing that thought back up, bringing some of the things that came out of those questions back up, thinking about what they mean again. Another way, consider Jesus. Once a week, you should study. Once a week, you should do an in-depth study. It's amazing. We have this thing called Sunday school, and you have a curriculum. You could study that curriculum before you show up on Sunday, and we've selected it the best we can to be very impactful for the stage and the group that's a part of it. Your teachers put a lot of time in that. So you know what? You could actually study and be ready. And God might actually intersect your life in some ways that help the people around you if you do that. Right? And so study once a week. Now to put it not too nicely or nicely, you can get your butt up an hour earlier and you can show up to Sunday school. You can be around a group of people that wants to talk about Jesus, and when they talk about Jesus and you talk about Jesus, you might just find that the gaze of your eyes get a little more on Jesus than when you're sitting at home sleeping or sitting at home, you know, catching up on a show before, uh, or, or scrolling on your phone before you get to church. Come to church. You're going to sing about Jesus. One of the points of the songs we plan is that they say amazing things about Jesus over and over again, and a lot of them. If you want to consider Jesus, come sing songs like that with the people of God so that your mind starts to fill up with Jesus. And we're going to do our best to open up a passage about Jesus and preach about Jesus. And so if you want to consider Jesus, we're going to give you something to consider about Jesus. And then surround yourself with Jesus-loving community that talks about Jesus and the random stuff of life, not just formal stuff. Consider Jesus There's ways for you to fix your gaze on Jesus with a greater intensity than you are right now, than I am right now. Second step, he is worthy of much more glory as God's son than the greatest of God's servants. He is worthy of much more glory as God's son than the greatest of God's servants. So I got to watch a high school soccer game last week, two weeks ago, I don't know, weeks all blend together. And uh, these are girls I've coached because I've been doing this a while now. Um, And so one of my girls past, not to belong to me, uh, but I got to coach. She sends a 35-yard shot, perfectly angled, dropping just below the crossbar, right over the keeper's head. Scores a goal. Amazing. And if you don't know this about me, I'm loud. So I cheered, and I cheered loudly, and I came afterwards, and I high-fived her, and I gave her a hug. I'm like, that's amazing. But it doesn't compare how loud I am and how excited I am when one of my daughters takes a ball perfectly out of the air and cuts around somebody makes a perfect pass unleashing an attack or tracks somebody down and makes the tackle that saves the goal a soccer tackle not a football one nothing and it doesn't take away that I love these girls that I've gotten to coach and I love that I've gotten to impact their life and I love that when they have great celebrations but there's a whole different level of celebration for your children than for kids you love and invest in. God loves all of his servants. He loves all the players on his team that are faithfully fulfilling the roles day in and day out, but there is a whole different glory from God, and there's a whole different glory from you and I. For God the Son, Jesus. I hope you have Christian mentors and friends that have made tremendous differences in your life. 
and you point to them and you think, I'm stronger because of them. I'm where I am because of them. God, so many amazing things are in my life because of them. But I hope it does not hold a candle. And there's a problem if it does. We get in this, this reversed a lot. There's a problem if it does. I hope it doesn't hold a candle to. Look what Jesus has done in my life. Glory to Jesus for my life, not just glory to people Jesus has used. The son has more glory than the servant. Look at this as he, as he says that. And so he says, Jesus is worthy, or Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And so Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God. We saw that in chapter one. He's worthy of so much more glory than, than Moses. And that goes without saying, but it's an argument that goes from there's glory and then there's greater glory. And so if you've read through 1 Corinthians, you find Moses came into the presence of God, saw the glory of God, and when he went back, his face glowed. And it glowed so much that it freaked everybody out. And they asked him to put a veil so that they didn't have to see the glory of God. It was too terrifying for them or uncomfortable for them. And that in 1 Corinthians lead, leads up to, 2 Corinthians, I'm getting that confused all day today. That leads up to a statement that you and I with an unveiled face behold the glory of Jesus and are transformed into that glory from one degree to the next. Moses had a glory that was so amazing it was uncomfortable but it's nothing compared to the glory of staring into the face of Jesus. That glory changes us. So Moses had a glory because glory was in front of him. Jesus had a glory because it was his glory. He is the brightness of the glory of God. Of course he's worth more glory. And then it talks about this analogy of a builder and a house. And, and now we're stuck with the question of like, what is the house? What is the building? And all of that. And so it could be a physical house. I guess, architect to the house itself. Could be a temple. And in the Old Testament, the temples were named after the people that made them, oversaw the construction. We had Solomon's temple, right? So there's a glory to Solomon for the temple. Or it could be a household, a family, a people. And what it is, because we're going to see it in the next verse, there's a combination between the temple house and the people. And they're going to become one in the new, and same in the New Testament. It's going to move from a physical building house temple to a people house temple. And so we'll see that really quickly in the next point. But there's this greater glory due to Jesus because of that. And so Moses, look at it. He was a servant. And by the way, that word for servant, there's five words in the New Testament. The most honored word for servant is that word. And it's usually a servant who offered their service versus was forced into their servitude. He was a very honored servant. He testified of the things that were going to be spoken later, meaning he hinted at Messiah. He spoke about Messiah to the degree we needed to know in the first parts of Scripture. He shared what was coming. He testified to what was to come. Um, and he was in God's house. He was in there and part of it. He led it. He was a leader, but he was there with everybody else. Now, what's the difference? Jesus, he's not servant, he's son. He didn't testify of the things. He was the fulfillment of the things that were testified, and he isn't in the house. 
He's over the house. He's worthy of so much more glory. And so if you were to walk through the scriptures, you had a tent of meeting, and when they built the tabernacle, the glory of God came in there visibly experienced, and nobody could minister because it was that powerful. And then Solomon builds a temple, and the same thing happens. The glory cloud comes in. It can be seen and experienced. The priest couldn't even minister because of the power of the glory of God there. And then the second temple is built, and it's glorious. It's not quite the same. It's glorious. And then Jesus walks onto the scene, and he says, you see this building? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. But he wasn't talking about the building anymore, was he? He was talking about himself. He is now the dwelling place of the glory of God. He is now God in the midst of his people, in the person of Jesus, not the building that represented God. And then there's one more step. You know what that step is? You are the temple of God. The dwelling place of God in the spirit. Consider Jesus with intensity who took a building we had to travel to and made it a person that traveled to us. Consider him. And then the last step. We are his, so live with hope-filled courage and boasting. We are his, so live with hope-filled courage and boasting. Easiest thing in this world is to become a cynic. Just live long enough and enough junk will happen for you to start turning off hope. For you to start being a person who smiles and who makes it and who is nice, but you don't believe much anymore things can happen. You don't believe much anymore that God's still up to stuff in the world. You don't believe much anymore that the Bible God is the same as the God who is intersecting your life or that's part of your life. You just don't believe anymore. There's too much life experience to to hold to that stuff anymore. So, yes, theologically, I agree to that stuff, but I kind of navigate life like it's not true and disconnected from it. I just want to plead with you, don't become that kind of person. Don't give in. Push back on the world. Push back with truth and faith and hope, even if, if truth or if Hope is not anything about your sight. There's a better hope coming. If you don't see it on this earth, you can press for hope for the rest of your life because the eternal hope is coming. Even if you don't taste it here, so many times, though, we can taste it here. God is too great a God who left heaven, sent his son to leave heaven, to die on a cross for our sins. And if he gave us that, you don't think he wants to give us all the other things that are good for us with it? What a pitiful view of God. He gave me Jesus and he saved me, but then he just kind of checked out and I'll see him in heaven. But that's what being hopeless says. Don't be hopeless. Don't be faithless in the real everyday world. That's what he says as he closes out. We are his house. Now we get a definition of what this house is that we're talking about. It's you and it's me and it's the people who have put their faith in Jesus and the people who have put their faith in God for all the ages. He formed a household called the people of faith and he put Jesus over the top of it as the one who brought them together and brought them to the Father. We're the house of God. And how important is this? How important is this? There's a very intentional reason, it's not to be clever, that I don't call this room we're in sanctuary, place of the holy. 
I call it auditorium, place of the hearing. And there's a very specific reason that has nothing to do with being clever. It has everything to do with if this is a holy place, then I come do holy, or I come watch somebody do holy things on the stage for a couple of hours a week, or maybe in a classroom for an hour a week, then I get to go live the rest of my life the way I want. The holy stuff happens here, and the life stuff happens there. That's what's true if this is the holy place. But what if you are the holy place and that God dwells in you by the Spirit wherever you go is the holy place and whatever you touch is the holy stuff and whatever you minister is the holy stuff to minister. That's a whole different way of viewing this thing. But it's the way this thing is to be viewed. You don't leave God and leave the holy stuff and leave faith on campus and go do life. You take God with you everywhere you go. And you're meant to. God is marching through this world on a, on a war path for the souls of men. And he, he didn't put his spirit in you to go hide it under a basket while you live your life out there. He sent you out into the world as the light of the world to be the light of the world. This isn't the holy place. Wherever you go is the holy place. And then when you gather with a group of believers, that's church. Because you're the church. So go be the church out there in the world. Just like Jesus became the temple to bring the temple to us, we become so that we go out and take Jesus to the rest of the world. We take Jesus to our workplace and we take Jesus to school with us. We take Jesus to the ball field. Now what you do with him there, kind of up to you, but he's there. He's there. Hold fast your confidence. Life has a way of taking you from a place where you're bold and strong and plenty of capacity and you know what you're doing and and you can kind of make your way and you can start to have some success at work and you can kind of do things. And it just has a way of there being enough losses and enough failures and enough regrets and enough disappointments to where you just retreat layer by layer by layer and you retreat back to I'm surviving and you retreat back to how small can I make my world and you retreat back to what is comfortable and safe because there's just not enough reserves in you anymore to face the next challenge to push back. There's not enough reserves in you to keep fighting. Hold fast your confidence. says keep fighting. Be courageous. Speak back to what's pushing you in and it's exactly for people like us. Where life has retreated and retreated and retreated. No, hold fast your confidence. Push back with courage. Push back with boldness. Push back with faith because you have a better hope, the boasting of your hope. And so if you found yourself shrinking back because there's just been too many waves and you just don't have the reserves to go again, stare at Jesus long enough to take back the ground that you've lost. Stare at Jesus back again to expand the walls of your life to include more people and more places and more impact. Push back and quit letting it push you. And it's not because you're strong enough to push back, it's because Jesus is glorious enough to push back. Now this is not a text saying, if you hold fast, you're God's people. The book of Hebrews is not designed to get you to question your salvation. The book of Hebrews is to get you to cherish and fall in love with the Jesus of your salvation so that you would never dream of giving it up. 
You would never dream of letting it go. Hold fast. A few practical things as we wrap up. How can you focus your thoughts on Jesus? How can you, specifically, more intensely focus your thoughts on Jesus? You gave a list already. Don't have to go back through it, right? Read, make a note, ask your questions, meditate, pray that, study, be part of a group of a fellowship of people in Sunday school and in church. Find Jesus talking about community, yeah. How can you focus your thoughts with intensity on Jesus? You, not collectively, you, me. Second, what is currently sapping your courage and strength? You know, there's sometimes a, a, a powerful thing to simply start naming your trials, pressures, and frustrations so that they're defined. Because so often our trials and frustrations stay out here and they're undefined and, and we never quite put our finger on them so they feel big and ominous as opposed to, to defined. And you can't speak Jesus to this big and ominous dread like you can speak him to these specific ones. And so define. Define the things that are taking your courage and strength. Maybe it's jobs or relationships or something inside. And then the follow-up question to that would be, how can you push back? What is so glorious about Jesus that you can push back with that? Last one. What three truths about Jesus encourage you most? What three things about Jesus encourage you most? If the way you overcome is staring at Jesus, then let's find some things about Jesus to stare at. And your three things may be very different. You know, he's, he's like eternal God. You will never define him completely. So there is never going to be a time you run out of ammunition of great things about Jesus to aim at the trials of, of your heart and the things that kill your courage. And so what are the three things right now? And it may be that you know one or two, and it may be that as you're reading and considering Jesus the way we've talked about, that you begin to discover more and more things that are specific to Jesus, that are specific to what you're facing. Look at Jesus, and you'll be encouraged to hold fast to Jesus. Look at Jesus, and you won't drift from Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, open the eyes of our heart. We see physical. We see bosses. We see relationships. We see our sin. It's all physical. Open the eyes of our heart to behold the glory of Jesus. Open the eyes of our heart and enlarge our heart to run the course of your commandments. Open the eyes of our heart with a fresh intensity to stare at Jesus. Oh, Father, because we want to hold fast. We want to push back on this world and back on lostness and back on the fall and back on the curse with the goodness of Jesus. Oh, give us courage again to push back. Give us strength again to push back. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.